Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. To live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. April Parks is a lifelong athlete and advocate. She's a multiple-time world jiu-jitsu champion, mother of four, business owner, and has worked in urban education for over 20 years. Growing up in poverty and experiencing various degrees of trauma in her childhood has helped her mold the woman that we see today. From an early age, April understood that in order to live a fulfilling life, one of success and meaning, that she must pursue in every way and meet adversity head on. Hard work and dedication became her mantra. When people say you can't do that, she simply motivates April and she says, watch me. That is our answer. That is her purpose. And that is her ethos. April, thank you so much for being on here today. We should have just said record from the beginning because we came out of the gate with some incredible stuff, but thank you so much for being here. And I, I love that question because I've had people that say that to me, you can't do that, or that's crazy, or why are you doing that? But in my experience, when people say you can't do that, they're actually just kind of projecting onto you their limitations, their discomfort with trying to find excellence. So that's, does that feel true to you? That does. So first, let me say thank you so much for having me. Please. You're amazing. No, no, I'm okay. My mom thinks I'm amazing. (laughs) That's all that matters, right? But yeah, that phrase to me is one that is just ignites fuel. When I hear you can't do that, it has always been something that really just touches my heart immediately and says, why can't I? And I've always believed that once I decide to put my mind to something that I'm going to either, I'm going to either do it or I'm going to come awful close. So Again, motivating words. You can't do that to me just sounds like, okay, I'm about to do it. That's it. And even again, that's crazy or why are you doing that? You recently had a post about how you you did a weight cut recently. I did. I did. And can you tell us a little bit about what that was, what that entailed? And this is over a, a period of time sort of in the season. So it wasn't just something that you did once. It was something that we, you had to continue to, to continue to push forward even after you made that weight cut. So you went from 150 to 134 pounds. That's correct. Yeah. Goodness gracious. And, you know, I mean, weight cutting is part of the sport. You know, I I do believe in doing all things without complaining and grumbling. So it it was against everything in my nature to actually post that. My reason behind actually posting that was to really encourage people not to, to cut weight. You know, I started competing in the early 2012. And at that time, I believed that I had to cut weight because it was part of my showing discipline, right? I was controlling my food. I was controlling my training. I was, you know, if I didn't cut weight, then I wasn't 100% committed and dedicated. Okay. And so that was kind of my mentality. And I think that when a lot of people get into uh, competing, that they also adopt that same mentality. But to be honest, I don't think it's a really sustainable lifestyle. If you find yourself just cutting weight nonstop, it really gets old quick. 
And it has nothing to do with intelligence. It has everything to do with science. It has to do with it's just not healthy for you. I think a lot of us feel that we would rather be the the heavier opponent in the lighter weight class than the lighter opponent in the heavier weight class. So sometimes we don't want to be stuck in that predicament. But if you truly believe that jujitsu is an art where technique overcomes all other, you know, variables, then you should be able to compete in whatever weight class you're in and do just fine. Yeah. So I just, I really had posted that because I think even as like a 40 year old woman cutting weight is different than when I was cutting weight when I was 32. It definitely took its toll on me, especially after running myself ragged into the ground since about July. And so by the time I had gotten to uh, November and I was doing the Masters World Championships in Vegas, I had been cutting weight on and off and yo-yo dieting for about three months at that point in time. I never really went off the deep end and ate like cookies and ice cream and all that. But I did, you know, try to fuel my training, try to fuel my body properly. And then every now and then life gets in the way and you've got some cortisol level spikes, whether that's from stress or lack of sleep or traveling. And um, I wasn't able to cut the weight for whatever reason. So I found myself in the predicament of cutting about four and a half pounds the morning of a competition. And it just wasn't smart. And that was really my reasoning behind, you know, sharing that with people so that 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 doesn't happen to them. Right. Yeah. And I don't think people understand that doesn't seem like a lot of weight, but when you I think you said you were doing that within two hours of weigh-in. So yeah. you were having to, to do that. So you had to be dry as a bone on the mark, on the scale. Yeah. And then as soon as they, you get off there and they say, okay, you're good. You're drinking water. You're rehydrating. You're getting salt. You're trying to get stuff back into your system. And even then, even after you've hydrated, you still don't feel necessarily like a thousand percent, right? No, not at all. Because you have glycogen stores, right? And so if you, even if you're eating these quick sugars to have energy, it just, you feel like a car that has no go, right? Normally you're able to be like on 10 miles an hour and all of a sudden you're like up to 90, right? And when you start to compete, you're like, wait a second, I'm only at 10 miles an hour still. Where's my 90 miles an hour? And so it's just, again, it's not advisable. Do people do it all the time? If you're going to do it, you got to do it smart. You got to do it way out in advance. I've had great weight cuts. When I did Medusa this year, I had cut down to 134 when I was in Mexico. And that was a great weight cut. I felt fantastic. But just doing it month after month after month, and that's just not a very normal weight for me. It was not very healthy. No. And it's like you said, it's important to respect yourself and your body in the process of doing that. Again, at the end of the day, if you get a gold medal, but you feel wrecked for the rest of the year. Again, sustainability is what we were talking about before we hit record. It's about being able to do these things in such a way that that serves you as opposed to being this thing that it's almost like an albatross around your neck. If you have to get those last three pounds before you step on the mat in a few hours, it's like, my God, I kind of wish I would have just stayed at the higher weight class and got a little bit more sleep and sugar in my body before that. Yeah, it's true. And I think, you know, I had bumped into a couple of my friends there and and we all had the same conversation. We had seen each other throughout the year at PANS and PAN Nogi and a variety of other uh, IBJJF tournaments. And they had said a, a really, you know, a profound comment to me. They're like, I don't even really know if I want to be here. And I said, I don't know if I want to be here either. And they're like, well, why are we here? Right? Like, why are we here? And I think that's a really important question that athletes should be asking themselves when they're making their goals. Is it really important to go to the tournaments that they're going to? What exactly are they trying to achieve? Right? Because do you want a world championship? Okay, then you work for just the world championship. Are you showing up at tournaments just to show up to be social? Are you showing up because you feel like you've always gone to that tournament and you need to be there and you're not taking it too serious? And so it was a really interesting comment that they made. And it really made me think like next year when I plan what I want to do, I would rather dedicate my energy and efforts to truly accomplishing what I want to accomplish 
as opposed to going to as much as I can to, to try to be part of what's going on, to try to attain as many titles as possible, those kinds of things. Because when you do that, you're just not showing up the best you. And you do want to put the best version of you out there all the time. Absolutely. If we prioritize everything, if everything's a priority, then nothing's a priority. And, and those are the things that we mark out, right? Let alone the targets of opportunity or when shit happens in life. And all of a sudden now, you know, I'm planning for this thing, but all this stuff happened. If we only have two big events that we're going to, that gets, it's much more manageable and we can recover and adapt. But if it's something every two months or every month, that's still a lot. And that still takes a lot out of us, not just the, the lead up, but then the reentry, the recovery. Because even when we go into a competition or a fight, very few times are we 100%. There's always something that's a little bit tweaked. There's always something that's a little bit sore. And so if you can even get there at 85%, you're still doing better probably than your opponent, right? That's absolutely right. And I think that we all fall victim to old trends. That's why it's really important to be disciplined, right? We talk about discipline all the time. And we can find ourselves disciplined, completely disciplined one year and the next year fall off of that discipline train. And, you know, I know more than anybody that, you know, scheduling rest time and making sure that you take time to just fully recover is, is, is so important. It's so valuable, especially as we age. And yet here I was literally competing every weekend for like three months. And it just, it just wasn't smart. It seemed exciting and it seemed fun, but it just wasn't smart. And I've also found too, with not just athletes, but also, you know, leaders, CEOs, people that are at the very top 1% of their profession. Some of those people, the ones that they know they need the downtime, they know that they should be relaxing. There's this potential anxiety. There's potential FOMO. There's this fear that in Taoism, Lao says that if you continually sharpen the blade, it goes blunt. But we often don't feel that until the competition, until the sprain, until the serious injury, until this bad flu that knocks us on our ass for a minute. And then our body's like, listen, we gave you all we could. And we're just, we're on strike now. So either you sit down with us and we all get together on the same page. Where you can keep pushing, which is fine, but eventually when you hit those diminishing returns, you're starting to just waste your time. You're setting yourself up for long-term injury, health issues, et cetera, right? That's right. And I think for I think for hardcore, and we say hardcore athletes, right? People that consider themselves to always just be, you know, on 100%, they're going hard all the time. They're like, I don't miss a workout, all these kinds of things, you know, we've all been there. From the time that I can remember, I would be, whether it was track and field or soccer, I'd be the first person on the track, the last person to leave, first person on the field, the last person to leave, first person on the mat, the last person to leave, right? I would train so hard. If you did 20 burpees, I'm doing 50. And so that was just kind of my mentality. But again, as you grow and you understand that that's just not wise, you have to also understand that while that seems disciplined to show up and to go hard all the time, it is just as disciplined to take that day off. It might even be harder for the hardcore athlete to say, I am going to totally stay out of the gym on Sunday. I'm going to eat well. I'm going to rest. I'm going to do some personal care, whatever that means. And I'll come back Monday hard, you know, but some people don't know how to do that. And even if you find yourself going to the gym on an off day or you're going and sitting in the gym, I don't care if you're stretching and doing yoga, mentally, you have not taken a break from that space. And so it's just really important for, I, I would advise all younger athletes that are coming up, that mental downtime and that, that break, that discipline of just taking one to two days off a week to allow your body and your mind to rest and recover, to really focus on you, your family, other jobs, other priorities. I think it's just really paramount. And we find this in the entrepreneurial space as well, where it's almost like this badge of honor to say, you know, hashtag team no sleep, all that kind of stuff. And again, 
and and that just shows kind of where they are in the journey. They're they're excited. They're they're not really sure what to do, but they're excited about the process. So a 16 hour day for them may be necessity, but you and I understand at the higher levels, whether it be at a martial art or in business or in leadership or any warrior kind of ideal, less is more. It's about quality over quantity. And a person like you, you can channel that amount of intensity into a very short period of time and get more from that than if you were to just sort of elongate it and half-ass it halfway for the rest of the, the session. And that's that again, that's where you say, okay, because I didn't take three hours to do this session, I was able to do an hour's worth of work in that amount of time. Now I have more time to recover, more time to give myself the downtime. And that relaxation is what allows us to create that recovery and explosiveness for the future. That's right. And I think it just gives us clarity in our lives with every aspect in regards to, you know, just what are we dedicating our time to appropriately? Are we balanced in everything in our life? That downtime is really important for you to really take a true, honest look at what you're doing. I compete a lot. I travel a lot. I train a lot, but I also have four kids. I have a dog. You know, I have another business. I work in Syracuse City School District. And so I have so many other things that I have to focus on, right? Aging parents, those kinds of things. And and where am I putting all my energy and effort? And if I'm putting it too much in one place, then I'm off balanced. Then naturally my body, my mind is going to be off balanced, right? And also I think another thing that's really important to take a look at is energy output. You're giving energy to so many different places. And even if you think you're this energizer bunny, which I think I am, like superwoman with a little cape, like I can do it all. Your, your energy is not infinite. It definitely is finite. And so even if there's things like, call it TikTok on your phone or call it just a bad habit, you like to play a little game or something, that's still energy that you're giving to something, right? When you shut it off, that doesn't go off completely. You're still thinking about those things. Just because you want to dedicate your time to training 100% doesn't mean that you're still not worrying about your son who is just taking his driving tests or a daughter who might not be feeling well, right? So you have all these things and you just really need to learn how to manage your energy in order to be successful when the time comes. I think that's so important. And in society, it's very easy to get good at shit that doesn't matter or that in the end, we don't really care about. But we feel that this is what everybody else is doing. You know, We're keeping up with the Joneses or even with that idea of going to the tournaments, there's a social component to that. And that's great. But like you said, is the reward worth all the time, energy, money that you're spending to do that. And again, when you're traveling, you're taking time from your family, you're taking recovery from yourself, you're taking all this other stuff. So I love that you talk about energy because there's the quality energy that we have. And so we should give those to the quality things in our life, not just this secondhand distracted, whatever's left over on my plate, I'll let you guys have. It's like, no, those people are worthy of that. You are worthy of that. And that's where that discipline comes in. I think also people when they think about discipline, they don't understand that it works both ways. Meaning if I don't have the discipline to reinforce this boundary of saying, this is as much as I'm doing that now, if I say no to this person, I'm a bad person. It's like, no, I'm choosing myself, my family, my priority over this person. Not that they're bad and not that they should feel badly about that. But a lot of people kind of feel guilted into doing things. To be honest, <laughs> I work I work with a life coach. His name is uh, Gaetano Salvador. And in 2020, it was the main focus for me to just basically set clear boundaries. It was very difficult for me to say no to people. I felt like anyone, it could have been a random stranger on IG that was like, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? And I would just be like, oh my gosh, what do you need? How can I help you? 
and I want to just help everyone. And at the end of the day, you just give, 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 give and everything of yourself and you have nothing left. And that's very real. Like that's not dramatic in any way, shape or form. It's very real. And then you're wondering, well, wait a second. Am I being given to like, am I giving to myself? Right. Am I giving me what I deserve? And in, in, in establishing boundaries, what I really learned was the only people that uh, don't like you establishing boundaries are the ones that like to violate boundaries, right? And push boundaries and, and take advantage of your kindness or your niceness. And so it, it does actually feel really good to work on setting boundaries and to say, you know what, I, I can't do that. I, I have this and this that I'm doing and I wish I could, but I'm, sort, I'm sure there's somebody else that can help you. And it's, it's a perfect example of trying to pour from an empty vessel, correct? We can't pour from that. And this is why it's so important to have boundaries, so important to set a boundary to give yourself the capacity to recover because I'm the same way you are. What I have in my cup, I'm, I'm constantly giving it to other people, but I'm realizing that the more I can actually focus on what's really a priority, what's in my cup becomes much more concentrated. Right. So now when I give to people, I don't have to pour the entire cup to give them what they need. I can give them a small droplet of that still keep myself intact. And here's the other thing. If you're constantly giving to people all the time and you're not having any kind of reciprocity, people don't realize it, but subconsciously they may begin to have a little bit of resentment that builds and then that compounds. Or if they're not allowing you, if they're not allowing people to get back to them, that may be a control issue where they like to be in control and they're like, oh, I'm the only one that gives and you can't get back to me. So again, there's a lot of stuff in there. So if you guys are listening to this and you're in that place or you recognize that in somebody else, or you recognize it in yourself, maybe a time to kind of sit back and, uh, you know, take a long walk or meditate on that and see what bubbles up for you. It's true. And I think it also goes back to like self-esteem, right? Like, like you're the only person that can give yourself esteem. That's it. Like you are the only one that can make yourself really, truly love yourself and feel good. And I think if, you know, you look at the concept of giving and, and really throughout my life, I've, I've thought a lot about this you should really always give with zero expectations. If I'm giving to someone, I honestly really don't expect for you to do anything in return now or ever. If you do, whoa, that's awesome. If you don't, well, I didn't give with any expectations, so I don't really care, right? And I think that that's just, that's really helped me in regards to uh, how I give and when I give. And, and another thing that I've really worked on this year in regards to giving is deciding who is worthy of giving. And I think that, you know, in, in the past, it's been taboo. It's almost like you're thinking you're better than somebody and the whole like, don't give your pearls to swine, right? Like that biblical saying. But it's very true. Not everyone deserves your time and not everyone deserves your advice and not everyone deserves to have you give to them freely and consistently. And that's not really a judgment thing. That's more or less a I'm watching, I'm seeing what you are doing, right? Your actions, not your words. And I see that you're a person that really is going to use the valuable things that I want to share with you. And therefore, time, which is the most valuable thing we have, I'm willing to give to you. That's it. And like you said, when we're giving, we're, we're giving to them. We're not, it's called giving, not called loaning. That's right. A loan is a compounding interest or expecting some sort of reciprocity. So if we give without that expectation, we can do it without any sort of attachment, which is is the key. Right. And then also, like you were saying, people will reach out and say, you know, can I have a conversation with you or whatever? And they want to pick your brain or, you know, ask you about this, which is actually called consulting. And then if you put a price tag on that, then all of a sudden they don't want to do it. So people don't respect what they don't pay for in some capacity, whether it be in hard work, blood, sweat, tears, money. So like you said, you could have a person on there and you talk to them 
you can give them the keys of the kingdom. They will not act on it. Why? Because they didn't pay anything for it. They didn't have to earn it in some capacity. What they were asking you or I to do was give them the shortcut around this adversity that they're facing, which is why people in business love to plan. They love to talk about it. They love to write things out and use graphs. But when it comes time to actually, okay, get on the phone, make that phone call. Hey, have that difficult conversation with that person. Hey, you can't make payroll this month. What are you going to do? That's when they really have to figure out, wow, can I do this or not? Or am I willing to do this? Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, again, I think it all goes back to just balance in life. You, you've got to balance your passions and think about your purpose, right? What's your purpose here? And if you're following your purpose and your purpose is to truly help people, inspire people, empower people, impact people, whatever your purpose is, right? Or uh, maybe it's just to help yourself. I don't know. But whatever your purpose is, how are you pursuing it? And is it balanced? Because if it's not balanced, it's eventually going to bite you right in the ass, right? Absolutely. Well, and we were talking before about in your intro, you were saying how when you were younger, you had gone through some, some hardship. Can you tell us a little bit about what your childhood was like and how that kind of set you up to win in, in life now, as opposed to at the time, it may not have felt like you were living much of a charm life. Yeah. So I grew up in a relatively rural area in upstate New York, and I definitely considered pretty impoverished. We were, and I think what made it worse is being like the poor kid in a pretty wealthy school district, right? Those massive school district lines where it's like the bus comes all the way out to God knows where to pick you up and you're the poor kid and you're going to school and you're pretty much going to get it, right? I had two older siblings, a brother and a sister, and we Again, you know, we had dirt floors, we had no phone, we had no washer and dryer, you know, we had no public assistance. So if we were going to get food, it was my dad trapping. My mom was working the best that she could trying to find good jobs. My dad was working to get a good job. He eventually landed a job on the railroad. And it was just a really, really tough childhood. What's interesting is that I never really, as, as much as I knew I was poor and I didn't have physical or tangible things, I always felt loved right? Like I always felt love for my parents and I knew that they were doing the best that they could do. And so, you know, when I'm in school, I want to say about kindergarten, first grade, they would do like the special gym night where they would have kids like show off their athletic prowess. And they had chosen me to do this uh, one event. And it was about kindergarten. And I was like, I think I'm pretty athletic. And I felt special for like the first time in my life. And I was like, wow, like people are paying attention to me. Maybe this is something like I could do or should do. And so I always kind of felt like that was maybe an avenue for me to do something. Fast forward, I'm in fifth grade now, and my parents were looking for like a summer camp or something to send us to. And thank God, the local county that we're in, they had a free summer camp. So it's absolutely free. That meant that I could go. And so, yeah, it was awesome. I'm like, this is the greatest time ever. I get to go do something, you know. And so I show up to summer camp and I happen to have a really cool camp counselor. And I was just like, Looking up to this guy, I'm like, he is so like jacked and built. And then I find out his name is Cadre Ishmael. And he eventually makes it to the NFL. He is in, at Syracuse University at the time. He was a, a football player. That summer, they were actually there to interview him. The news crew was. And they wanted him to race some kids down the track. And he chose me. They gave me like a 40-yard head start. I was so far ahead. Like so far ahead, you know, I'm over there scratching. I'm like ice girl and I'm like, oh, I'm going to kill this guy. And I won. And so like the news is interviewing me and I'm just like, you know, I'm so cool. And 
cadre came over to me and he said, but you, you did, you beat me, right? Like you won. And you know, they were trying to say, you know, Cadre, are you going to go to the Olympics this year for track or are you going to go right to the NFL? Like he wasn't really sure what he wanted to do. NFL obviously is going to pay you some money. Right. And before, you know, the last day of camp, I remember him saying to me, and now you got to understand, like before that teachers would treat me poorly because I was the poor kid. I had teachers ask me like, don't you have any nicer clothes to wear to school? And I just remember feeling so ashamed and when they would say things like that to me, it wasn't like I didn't even take it personal. I felt bad for my parents who I knew were trying really hard and I just didn't want anyone to judge my family, right? And so like things like that really hurt me and, and made me maybe not feel normal, like not feel like everybody else. But that last day when Cadre was about to leave to go off to the NFL, he said to me, you know, you're really special and I really think that you could do something with your life in athletics. And once he told me that, I was like, nobody can tell me any different because somebody that is substantial saw something special in me and I am going to do something. And so literally went home that day. I said, mom, I don't know how we got to do it, but I need to get some track spikes. Like we got to do something. And my mom's like, okay, I'll work really hard and I'll get you a pair of track spikes. So that was the start of just a really great track and field career. My mom got me some track spikes. By the age of 12, I was in national track meets winning. And I ended up breaking like every high school record. And I went to Syracuse University and ran track and field. So it was, it was pretty awesome. You know, it was a lot of stuff in between then. I can go over a lot more things that happened, but that's kind of like, that's the inspirational moment where just the impact that a person and, and, you know, he was only in my life for like two months, two months to have the impact of a lifetime. I really, truly believe that it was him telling me that I was special that I was like, I am like, nobody can tell me any different. No, it's, it's so true. And with that belief and with that amount of what did he do? He actually poured into you that quality that he had, as opposed to just, yeah, you know, oh, well, I gave her a 40 yard head start. It's like, no, no, no. He, he saw that within you. I interviewed Ed Milet. I don't know if you're familiar with him. And he used, he was actually an opening speaker for Tony Robbins. And he said that Tony Robbins actually said the same thing to him about speaking, which gave him that spark, he saw his specialness. And he said, and after that, he believed you couldn't tell him any different either. And that's why he's the speaker that he is today. He believed he's like, he always had the ability to speak, but hearing somebody at that level do that. So that is such a profound moment. And, but to have it at that young of an age, yeah, it's almost like an unfair advantage compared to everybody else. It's like, okay, there's April and there's everybody else that's going to try to run in this meet because we're all competing for second place at this point. It was, it was really, it was really serious to me. And I, like, it was the year afterwards, there was this Hershey track meet that they did. Milton Hershey would actually fly in athletes from around the United States that won local, regional, and then state qualifiers. He would fly them all in to Hershey, Pennsylvania. And we would go to Hershey Park for free. We would compete with the best athletes from all over the world, like all over the United States anyways. And I had been trying to win that track meet. And so I went and I did the 55 meters and the long jump. And then I randomly did a softball throw, right? So random. And we came home and my own father, my father was on the phone with his friend and he said, yeah, she didn't do too good. She only won that softball thing. And I heard him up the stairs. I was upstairs and I was so mad. And I was like, oh, and he was like, she's, she's not going to make it this year. And I was like, so I was just so mad. So the phone rang not like five days later. And they said, your daughter is going to Hershey Park because her softball throw was the best in the entire state. And I was like, I made it. I did it. Be dad. You told me I couldn't do it. I told you I was going to do it. From there, I just, I was the first 
first 12 year old, I was seventh grader and I was put on varsity track. And that year I had won uh, sectionals. I started to get really serious into track. And then my brother, who was basically, he wasn't into any sports. He had wrestled a little bit, but he was a phenomenal athlete. Oh my God, such an exceptional athlete. He saw me throwing javelin in the front yard one day. And he's like, let me throw that. So the only thing he owned and he worked really hard for it was this car, right? Like it was like this old, like, I don't know, Trans Am or something weird from back in the day. And he threw the javelin and he had no idea he was going to throw it that far. It goes right through the hood of his car. I was like, oh my God, I don't know if I'm horrified by what just happened to your car or how good you are at throwing <laughs> javelin. You are like a really gifted athlete. And I talked him into going to Empire State Games, which was a huge statewide games that we had every year. If you qualified for it, it was a pretty big deal. And he went and he won. And so he won the qualifiers. It was going to be about a month later that he and I would be walking into the University of Buffalo together. And that summer, right before, it was it was not long before the Empire State Games, he was hit and killed by a car. So there was another defining moment where I said, wow, my brother always bragged about me and how good of an athlete I was. I have to keep going. I can't, I can't not keep going. I've, I, this is like my gift that I've been given is athleticism. And I'm going to find an outlet for it one way or another. So I, I continued to compete after that and uh, finally making my way to, to Syracuse University. Wow. And eventually this led you to jujitsu, correct? So yeah, so this is really interesting. So I, I compete at Syracuse University and I get married in my 20s. I did not have a great marriage and I'm not going to go into that on this podcast. That's another lifetime. Almost seems like a lifetime that didn't exist at this point in time. But again, I think everything that you experience brings you to what you're supposed to experience. I was in a really bad spot after not doing any more track and field. College is over, really down on myself. I would say I was about 180 to 190 pounds, completely out of shape. I was just stay at home mom. And then I started working and teaching and just basically really depressed. I can, I can categorize myself as really depressed. I had developed a little bit of like agoraphobia. I didn't really go out in public unless I was just going right to work and coming right back home and eventually kind of just build up the, the courage to be able to leave that marriage. And when I left that marriage, I, I, I found local gyms. I got back in shape. And then I found my fiance now, who's GVN. And we end up, you know, we have a child together. And he does jujitsu and I try to take my older son, Michael, to jujitsu and he hates it. He absolutely hated it. And here I am standing there with my son, so embarrassed, like I really thought he might like it. I'm so sorry. And the coach at the time said, well, why don't you try it? And I was like, oh, this thing looks crazy. You guys, literally, this looks so bizarre. I don't know what you're doing, but it looks bizarre. The sweat on people's faces. You look like you're wearing pajamas. I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> Ugly pajama wrestling. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I don't think I would like to do that. He's like, but you look really athletic. And I think, again, just hearing that and knowing my childhood, I was like, well, I am athletic. That is me. Okay, let me try. And I went to maybe three or four classes before I did feel really good. Like, I know we all say that we're all like, I think I was good as a white belt. And you're like, you probably were terrible, but I really did think I was a pretty good white belt. And the, the coach said within like the fourth class, he said, I think you could be a world champion. And 
that was really all I needed to hear because my whole life, all I wanted to do was win like a world champion, like whether it was an Olympic gold in track and field, you know, anything that was all I ever wanted. And from the moment that he said that, I really believe that like nobody ever could have stopped me. Like I was going to win. And since that time you've, you've won five world yes. championships. That's incredible. And, and, you know, as, as motivating as he was, you know, the whole point when we started this podcast off was when you hear somebody say, you can't do that. Right. So he was one coach. There was another coach there. And after he told me, I think you can be a world champion. I went to the other coach and I said, Hey, I said, excuse me. Uh, my name's April. And the other coach thinks I could be pretty good. Do, do you think that I could like start competing or do like some kind of camp or like, I don't know what you do, but I want to do that. And it's kind of like, you know, and I think, you know, you've, you've had Emily Kwok on your podcast. She's awesome. Yeah. Oh, she's amazing. And many women that have trained for a long time, you know, that are black belts at this stage, especially in more isolated areas, right? Like the really isolated areas, you get a totally bizarre, different experience. It's bizarre. I said, so yeah, I, I want to do that. And he turned to me and he's like, why would you want to compete? And I was like, because I think I could be like really good. And he was like, no, he goes, you'll just find that there's a girl like you at every school all over the world in every city. I don't even know why you'd want to do that. And just totally dismissed me and walked away. And I remember there goes that feeling again. I was like, Oh, you wait and see. Right. Like, and I walked away and I was like, that's it. You know, like, I'm just going to go win everything. I got to go win it all now. <laughs> so yes, yes. So there was just a lot of motivation. There's like the, the roller coaster of life, right? Like there's the ups and then there's the downs and then there's the ups and then there's the downs. And again, I, I really believe it's those struggles. It's those negative comments to me, at least that really define and, and find my true character, which is, which is one of resilience and one of, of striving. Yeah. I mean, well, that's what a warrior is and that's what you're doing. You're literally living it with everything that you do. And then you were saying also that with this, with urban education, from your background, from your experiences, from your childhood, from your upbringing, this gives you the ability to really connect with the people there, with your, with your students, much greater than a person if they were, you know, two or three kind of classes removed and they're like, oh, wow, that must be difficult for you. Yeah, that's right. I, I really, you know, referencing back to Quadre and his impact on me, I'm not saying I want to be that person. I think that would be almost egotistical, but I understand the impact of just one person being able to tell you that you're worth something, that they see something special in you, that they see potential in you, that they treat you special for a moment or a day or a year or five, if you're in my school for five years. And, and, and just hoping that that's enough of an impact, just that one person for them to walk away and, and be like, you know what, when, when somebody else tells them they can't, well, I remember when Ms. Parks told me I can, or when someone says you're not really worth a lot. Well, no, Miss Parks is a person that's important and she thinks I'm awesome. So it just, I feel like I'm blessed. I'm really, really lucky to be able to be in these kids' lives. Really lucky. That's a huge opportunity. And you, again, your background makes you qualified to, to help them with these things. Again, you're, you're cut from a similar cloth in some of those capacities. And we talk about empathy. A lot of people can feign empathy but they don't understand that practical empathy where it's like, listen, I know where this person's coming from. I know what they are either missing or I know what they need to hear, whether it be something that's motivational 
or maybe something the other direction that kind of calls them all their bullshit and kicks them in the ass and says, listen. That's right. I mean, you know, people laugh all the time. We play good cop, bad cop at school all the time. And they're like, Mrs. Parks is the best at playing bad cop. Because I come in and I mean, like, I love them to pieces. There's a time to really, you know, acknowledge what's going on and, you know, baby and coddle and all these kinds of things. But a lot of the times they need to hear, all right, that's happened. It sucks. We get it, right? Like, but we're moving on now. And we know that we're better than this and we're not doing this anymore. I think that that's what gets, especially from martial arts, if you're an instructor or if you've been doing it for a long time, that's a huge advantage in these other arenas. Emily is great at bad cop, right? Yep. It's the same kind of thing. That's what makes her such a good executive coach as well, because we can see into that person. We can see where they're, they're lying to me to justify the lie that they tell themselves to maintain this mediocrity. Right. And so when you sit there and you look at them and you go, is, is that really true? Did you really try? Or did you just go until you hit some adversity? Because that's what most people do. Is that what you did? And then when you kind of press them, they go, well, yeah, but and it's like, I don't need to hear the yabbits. Yabbits live in the forest. We're right here. And like you said, because what happens, we go back and we continually play that same story. And it all ends up back right here where I'm a victim and I'm powerless and they did something wrong and I'm a good person and that shouldn't have happened. And like you said, everything being so, so what? What are you going to do now? Because we all get broken. That was part one of my interview with April Parks, multiple time world Brazilian jiu-jitsu champion, athlete, and advocate. You can hear part two of the interview on the next episode of Octonom Verba, where April returns to explore the importance of taking action when faced with adversity and the tremendous power behind this statement, now what? We also explore how jiu-jitsu teaches you to challenge yourself consistently, why having discipline in one area of life can impact your entire outlook, and how to break through the default mechanism of a quiet life. Until next time, live a life of actions and not words. Live a life of Okta Nonverba. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Okta Nonverba inner circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.